you know, geez, leave it to Gwen to come up with like the coolest illustrations week to week. I've, I swear, gotten more feedback on what Gwen does than any of the rest of us here. And uh, big shout out to you, Gwen, and thank you for that. It's just, uh, it, it's so good to see it at the basic level, isn't it? And that's what I want to talk to you about today. And I specifically want to contextualize it over the last 10 days and everything that's happened to George Floyd. What, what do you even say when something like that happens? And what do you even say in the aftermath of what's happening? You know, our, our country is reeling. And this family is still grieving and hurt and hate. They seem to be everywhere. Over the last 10 days, I feel like battle lines are being drawn. There's more finger pointing and accusation, pent up frustration that's boiling out, anger and hurt and suspicion and people who are more inclined to speak than they are to listen. And I've been wrestling with it this week, especially in relation to what we've been doing here, talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus' different way. And what it means for those of us who are followers of Jesus, or seeking even to follow Jesus. Like, like what, what, what can we do? Or maybe better put, the question is not what can we do, but what should we do? What, what does God want us to do as people of his kingdom in times and situations and tragedies and like these? You know, I, I just want to be completely transparent with you that this is such a difficult message for me for a couple of reasons. First, because I'm disconnected from the events. Meaning, even though there's buzz and talk and protests going on all around fundamentally, this started as something that happened to a person up in Minnesota. Three, four, what, 500 miles away from where we're currently at. I remember not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before I came into a staff meeting. And those of you who are connected here, you know me. I'm not much of a, a social media junkie. I'm not really much of a news junkie. I, I kind of always do the bare minimum just to stay kind of connected to the world, whether right or wrong, I don't know. But I came in and the staff is talking about it. And like, did you hear what happened? And I'm like, no, like to George Floyd. And I'm like, who's that up in Minnesota? Fortunately, I knew where that was. And they started to unfold to me another account of what at the time was just coming through the pipeline as suspected police brutality of white police officers on an African-American man and that it resulted in his death despite the fact that he was pleading and begging and detained. And I remember what flashed through my mind. I, I, I just had this visceral reaction inside where I just kind of went, 
oh no, not again. Because of course this isn't the first time that we've heard about these types of things, faced these types of things, gone through these kinds of things, be it in the Chicago area or in the country itself. But being something that happened over there in me, living here after the moment of just kind of coming to terms and hearing what happened, and oh my gosh, I kind of promptly went on with my day because that was something that happened over there, not here. As the rest of the week unfolded, it was interesting for me. I just kind of like to trace some highlights with you of how I kind of went through this journey this last week or so. Fast forward to, to Monday, just last Monday, five days after the event. And yes, I heard a, a little bit of talk of maybe a, a rally here or a protest there, but, but my family and I were sitting up in, in Heart Saloon up in Hebron and we're, we're doing our pizza thing and we're, we're just enjoying time together and, and the cell phones start buzzing and going off. You know that kind of like crazy, funky sound they make, like that alert sound that they make where it overrides everything you're doing and we see that there's a curfew being put in place in Kenosha and then a little while later it buzzes and goes off again and a curfew is being put in place in Milwaukee, and I'm just kind of like, oh my gosh, what is going on? But I had this visceral reaction. What on earth does Kenosha have anything to do with Minnesota? Why on earth are things happening in Milwaukee? Over a state away. And I again kind of put it to rest. It was shortly thereafter. And my wife and a good friend of ours were dialoguing. Her husband is a police officer in Indiana. And over the weekend, he was called out on what we can just safely call crowd control or riot control, trying to be a calming presence and peaceful presence in what the city or county of Indiana was anticipating to be a potentially violent time. And of course, hearing the fear of his wife about what might happen to him, what he might have to face, what, what he was being called in to do. And those of you who are in law enforcement, or maybe more specifically the family members of those in law enforcement, you know the feeling that I'm talking about. And hearing how over the weekend he was jeered and shouted at and belittled and had things thrown at him, and keep in mind that our friend is Laotian, first generation here in the States. And I remember having this reaction, what does a Laotian police officer in Indiana have to do with anything going on, with whatever racial tension there might be in Minnesota? And, 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 and it raised kind of, again, well, Tuesday, comes along, and my friend from my hometown of Elmhurst, where I grow up, sent me an email, and it really wasn't him first, but his dad, and it was forwarded, going, I don't want to be an alarmist here, but you may want to tell your mom to just kind of be careful tonight, because Elmhurst is expecting a lot of violence, and they sent me pictures of, like, 
their downtown shopping district, all these cute little touristy stores. I remember seeing Kilwins, chocolate all boarded up, and the reports of garbage cans and flower pots and anything that could be thrown being removed by the city and roadblocks being put in place. And I remember my reaction. It was, what on earth does Kilwin's chocolate have to do with what happened in Minnesota? But the more this built, the more it was something I found I couldn't stay disconnected from. And of course, since then, You've been getting them. Social media explosions, emails coming in, wounded people speaking out, angry people assembling, people on the sidelines trying to make sense of it all, everyone, of course, with an opinion in the midst of it. And so often I find George Floyd forgotten. Oh, no, not forgotten as a symbol or as an icon or as a rally point, but forgotten as a human being. And his family, forgotten as real people who are really actually grieving. And the families of those who have faced similar things in the past like this, oh, it all just coming up again, the the grief and the wounds not fully healed and the tears and the frustration and the anger coming out again. I think sometimes the most important people get forgotten in all of this. But nonetheless, sitting here in the far northwest suburbs of Chicago, feeling disconnected from all of it, but it's not the only reason this is difficult for me today. It's difficult because I'm a middle-class white male. I've never really had to deal with the receiving end of racism or racial tension, or even if we move beyond those words a little bit to people judging me, scrutinizing me, or treating me in vastly different ways. Because to them I was frightening or different. I feel like it's difficult for me in a situation like this to speak to you today with any kind of objective authority, if, if, if you could even permit me that phrase, to something I am fundamentally disconnected from. You know, growing up, I was taught that the police were my friends and taught to trust them. You know, except for speed traps and my most paranoid moments, I've never been afraid of the police. But I talk to my African-American brothers and sisters and people of other minority groups as well. And I realize that's not reality for them. Not all of them, anyway. 
And I try to imagine what it's like to live in their shoes and to see things different ways. And I'm not racist, or at least I don't think I'm racist. So it seems like an issue for those people over there because I've come to terms with it and they just need to now. And I realize how disconnected I can actually make myself or find myself in the midst of times like these. But you know, this past week, I was, I was listening to Bill Amis. Bill Amis is a former district president here in our church body in northern Illinois. For, for those of you who come from like a Catholic or an Episcopal background, think of him like a bishop. For those of you who come from more of an evangelical or non-denominational background, think of him like a pastor to pastors. Bill is retired now, but he was sharing how about a decade ago, as he was leading Northern Illinois churches in the Lutheran church, how, how, how there was kind of an initiative at play that he was leading, which was an attempt to help predominantly white congregations in a predominantly white church body understand racial issues as they impact not only our community today, but our churches today and what it means to be the church in the midst of it. And he said, the overall difficulty that he kept coming up against the roadblock was that he would go to a congregation and they would go, we're not racist. And you know, the reality is they were right. By and far, many of them weren't and loved deeply and respected deeply people of other races and ethnicities and colors and eagerly hoped that they would fill their church chairs in pews. But for them, because they didn't see themselves as racist, it wasn't an issue they felt they had to deal with. That was something they were disconnected from. It was something over there. And Bill said that his continual challenge to these churches was, yes, I hear you. And I understand what you're saying. But have you ever tried to figure out what it feels like for them? Have you ever tried to listen to what it's like for those who actually have to face situations like these and live under a fear of what might happen to them? And his encouragement to these congregations was have a conversation with somebody different whose skin is different than yours, whose nation of origin is different from yours, whose background is different from yours. Try to have a conversation with them and listen. Listen to their story. 
what it's like for them. And to my white brothers and sisters listening this morning, I want to encourage you to do the same. Have a conversation with one of your black brothers or sisters and just ask them to share if they're willing what it's like growing up as a black man or woman in our country today. But don't stop there. Because it's not just an invitation for our white brothers and sisters, it's an invitation for everyone. It's an invitation to our black brothers and sisters who are listening today to do the same with your white brothers and sisters and what it's like to live in a country today where there's often a fear that when you're not racist, you might be perceived as being such. But it's not just white-black either. Have a conversation across the board with your Latino brothers and sisters, your Mexican brothers and sisters, people who are immigrants to this country, illegal or legal. And open your heart and open your ears and just listen to their story of what it's like and what they face. And keep pushing this. I encourage you, do this with people, not just in America. Listen to people from Uganda, from Kenya, from India, from Istanbul. Because issues like what happened in Minnesota are not just American issues. What do people face globally? No, find those who are different from you. Talk to someone who's gay. Someone who is very different from you at school. Someone with very different political ideologies, cultural ideologies, religious beliefs, and values. And see what they have to say, because if fundamentally we're driven by Jesus' call to love our neighbor as ourselves, and if fundamentally from the Gospels we come to understand that our neighbor is not just the person who lives next door, but anyone that we cross paths with, no matter how different they might be, it starts with hearing who they are, recognizing and affirming them as human beings and their story so that maybe we can come to understand a little bit more, to empathize a little bit more, and not just talk about loving our neighbors as ourselves, but learn how to actually start the messy work of doing it. So I did it. This week I had the amazing opportunity to get into conversation with an amazing pastor named Elsner Lewis, who's serving on the south side of Chicago right now. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Elsner. Elsner is an African-American pastor in his 60s. He grew up in Chicago his entire life. He lived through the race riots in Chicago from a generation past. He served 
in the same church, St. Philip's Lutheran Church, an LCMS congregation, and the Woodlawn community down by University of Chicago on the south side. He's raised two African-American children, males. His wife is a public school teacher for special ed in the Chicago public school system on the south side, and now a caseworker. The church that he serves, St. Philip's, was founded in 1924. He is only the sixth pastor this church has ever had. And, it, and it's, it's served really as the mothership, if you will, for the African-American church community, particularly in the Lutheran church, but even in the greater community in that region. And I had this amazing opportunity to meet Elsner this past week. And I got to tell you, man, I'm like live streaming this guy's church now, you know, and listening to his YouTubes and, and just being able to listen to this, this man with wisdom, this man with discernment, this man who loves God and this man who has had to both live the road himself, but also help his own community, church and greater Chicago community process these events. It struck me that today, it seems far more appropriate to share with you what he had to say than my own thoughts on the matter. So I'd like to share with you briefly this morning just some highlights, a selection, if you will, of the encouragement and wisdom and insight he was giving to me and some of the others who were gathered together with him. He started by saying that his heart is heavy, that for him it isn't something that's disconnected, that even though he's in Chicago and this happened in Minnesota, it's nonetheless something that, that weighs on him and his church and his community, and that he carries it like a weight. We know what emotional burden is like. Many of you carry them regularly, if not daily, that, that, that weight that just seems to rest upon you. And so many times we know you come to a place where you think the weight is finally gone, it's free, but something triggers it, something happens, and you feel it weight on you again. And every time it happens, so often it just feels filled with a sense of despair or futility or hopelessness. He shared with us the, the feeling of weight. He shared with us the, the difficulty of helping his church and community process. People of so many different persuasions, so many different beliefs, people who have lived in his area throughout the rough times of that community on the south side, people who are moving in, white minorities there now, part of the gentrification, people in the University of Chicago community who they fondly refer to as their children there at St. Philip's, but also his own children and his wife and others affected and proceeded to say how at some level we may never know what really happened. 
We have video and we have stories and we have testimonies, to be sure, but who can know the heart and mind of another human being? And at some level, we may never fully know what transpired that horrible day in Minnesota, what was going through the mind of George Floyd and the police officers who arrested and eventually suffocated the life from him. But at some level, we don't have to know because God's call on us is not tethered to knowing every detail and every intricacy of another's human's heart and mind. God calls us to things despite the fact that we don't know everything. And he shared a passage that I'd like to share with you today. And he couched it in this phrase that while what happened in Minnesota may be a race issue, even if it is a race issue, it is still something fundamentally more and deeper than a race issue. Because what happened in Minnesota and what's happening in our country today is fundamentally a sin issue. And he shared this passage with me. From the prophet Micah, God says, He showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. You know, there's times I look at this simple, poignant, powerful passage and find myself going, if I knew nothing more than this, it would be enough to live in a God-honoring way as a follower of Jesus today. To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God, I encourage you, read and meditate on this passage this week, memorize it. Don't just write it in a Bible or a journal, but write it on your soul and on your mind is something that marks you and becomes the fiber of who you are. Elsner shared that in times like these, the call of Micah It's upon all of us to act justly. He said it's not a time to remain silent and that our responsibility in the face of racist behavior but any sinful behavior that brings cruelty or hurt or death to other human beings, whether it's caused by fear or by anger or by callousness or desensitization or whatever the case might be, Our call is to love all of God's children and to act justly, to do what is right and to see that what is done is done rightly on their behalf, that all of us carry the responsibility according to the prophetic call to not just value justice, but to be participants of it. You know, growing up disconnected 
from those on the receiving end of what has become called the social justice movement. I hear justice, and my mind goes to comic book supervillains and vigilantes. It is not the spirit of what Micah is speaking of to the community of Israel back in this day. No. To realize that what affects the least of these, we are called to stand next to, to protect, to encourage, to defend, to act justly. Elsner puts so much emphasis on teaching young people, maybe because of his age. He even said this at one point going, maybe the reason the Lord still has me on this world in my 60s is because I have something that I can teach to those who are younger, to those who are filled with zeal and idealism and passion, something to teach to those who oppress and those who are oppressed, something to teach to those of us listening today who are of the older generation. God has given you a repository of wisdom, of insight and discernment, to teach those who are younger in this day and age what it means to love and thirst for God's justice, God's way, and to be participants in it in our day and age. Elsner is not the only pastor I've heard this from. I want to read you this quote from another, from Bethel Church in Chicago, said a black pastor friend here in town challenged us white pastors to stop being careful. Carefulness like avoiding saying racism or systemic racism does not help. Be honest and authentic. I think there's a challenge maybe to all of us who feel disconnected in that today. To act justly is not just to act justly in our own community, in our own family, in our own church, but to seek it wherever people are facing injustice in the world today. Elsner went on, and he said, but it's also to love mercy. That injustice, the goal is not vengeance or revenge. The goal is not to find outlet for anger upon the hurt of another, but to love mercy, which he said starts with listening, to open our ears and listen. Listen to the pain and the wounds of those who have been affected. Listen to the pains and the wounds of those being prosecuted. Listening to the pains and the wounds of those who are seeing it on the sidelines and being charged to stop and listen with open hearts and with open ears. He said he never thought he'd be witnessing what he's been witnessing. And this from a man who's lived it his whole life, living through some of the most difficult racial times in Chicago. But his encouragement to act justly and to love mercy and finally to walk humbly with your God. To walk with God is how you live, he said. 
What it means to walk with God is how you go about conducting your life, which means to practice justice and practice mercy right where you're at. He shared how after the riots and some looting and the vandalism and destruction came through his neighborhoods, going out and witnessing others going out, picking up a shovel and picking up a broom to try to bring order back to the chaos, to lending a hand to those who had the window smashed or to those who were spit at or to those who got caught in the blast radius of it all. He talked about how things like the food relief centers had to be closed, so deciding to just start feeding people directly out of their home and out of their church. He stressed that this isn't an us versus them thing, that it's a sin thing. And all of us are responsible for God, not only for how we live, but for what happens to those around us, those that we call our neighbors. He shared another passage from the book of Esther, where Mordecai comes to Queen Esther, a Jew in Persia, a foreigner and minority herself, in the face of the oppression of the Jewish people, and he says this, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance, well, they'll arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Who knows why we live in this day and age? Who knows why we live in the communities in which we live? God does. But maybe, just maybe, you, you have come to position for such a time as this to act justly. to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I was listening to another pastor, another district president from a different denomination, a Wisconsin Synodical Lutheran Church who wrote something amazing before Floyd Jones, but it certainly pertains. He wrote it in the midst of what was happening with corona, but, but, but apply it now, if you will, to the last 10 days. He says, something bothers me. Something bothers me, bothers me more as a health crisis and now this crisis grips our nation. Christians are eager to help. But one thing is missing. 
repentance. We should be in the lead of calling ourselves to repentance, recommitment, and renewed and faithful zeal when God's final rescue comes. Race issues, fear issues, power issues, nihilism. All the things that stand behind episodes like what happened to George Floyd. All the things that stand behind other instances of this in our nation and world. All the things that stand behind school shootings and every other tragedy. All the things that stand behind all of the tragedies that we face in this world. Yes, we may be able to label them as sin issues or fear issues or anger issues or those seeking to capitalize on situations to their own agenda or any other number of things. But behind them all is something deeper. As deep as those issues go. And it's sin. Fundamentally, what we're facing is a sin issue. What George Floyd faced is a sin issue. What the police face is a sin issue. What the protesters and rioters face is a sin issue. What those who sit on the sidelines face is a sin issue. Because all of these things boiling up right now are nothing more than symptoms. It's like skin cancer. We see the lesions popping up, but underneath is something more systemically wrong. And it's sin. And God's call on us as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, is to lead the way in the face of sin, but to lead the way in repentance. To show the world what it is like to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, but to show the world what it is like. To be honest about all the myriad ways each of us are so guilty of not acting justly, loving mercy, or walking humbly with our God. Because what the world needs to see is not people who think they're right. What the world needs more of is people who know that they're wrong. Wrong before God. In so many ways, and that is what it means to be a Christian. To be a citizen of God's kingdom and Jesus calling us, who call ourselves by his name, is to lead the way. To lead the way in this world of showing what true, genuine Repentance and humility looks like, especially in times like these. I want to share one final passage with you today. It comes from the prophet Zechariah. You'll, you'll see the connective tissue, the commonality with Micah so clearly, but there's a little extra spin that Zechariah puts on it, and I want to share it with you Today, look at what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But look at the next verse. 
but they refuse to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turn their backs and stop their ears. Brothers and sisters, may that not be true of us today. 